leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. ROI, return on investment. There's one of the things, the first thing I think you always have to think about is why are you doing this? What's your KPI? What's the point of getting into the digital space and making something here? And really, I'm going to say it's audience awareness awards, some of those sorts of things. Are you doing it because you want glory? Are you doing it because you want to build people who are going to come and see something that you've done or something else that you're doing? Do you want to sell things? Do you want to count the number of plays that you get? Do you want revenue? Are you trying to build a level of community? And by community, I mean people who will then travel on a journey through you possibly to the second iteration of your service or the third iteration of your service or the sixth or seventh series that you make. And it's kind of interesting because one of the things that I I kind of really see at the moment is that in transmedia we're still trying to get to the point where we say it's the money that why we're doing it. So when I look around on the internet and did a really good search to look for successful multi-platform or transmedia services, the best quote I came up with was this one. So what you get here is conspiracy for good. Our definition of successful transmedia is one that utilises technology to deliver story content. You'll note there it says nothing about making money. Now, in my research, I can't really find anybody who's really making serious money out of multi-platform. So I'm going to give you all the business models, but I'm not going to tell you they're successful yet, but I'm going to tell you we're on the verge of them being successful. And the first thing I have to say is, if we don't have a successful, a sustainable film industry in Australia, if films are made based on grants and don't cover their costs, why is there the expectation in digital that we should cover our costs? And it's a little rant of mine, which is that I talk to filmmakers who say, why should I do digital? Where's the money? And I say, well, why do you do film? Where's the money? And they tell me about all the grants they get to make their films that they never have to pay back. Right? And I tell them about all the grants they could get for digital to make their digital stuff that they would never have to pay back. But they kind of don't seem to see these things as the same thing. So we are at a point where everybody looks at digital and goes, I know there's money in digital. I want some of that money. And there's an expectation that we should be making money that comes from digital spaces. And as I'm saying, I don't know that we're there yet. So on the first and second screen, the really interesting thing for a lot of legacy or heritage content makers is that they only have to convince their purchaser. So you've got to sell it to a broadcast or an investor or a screen agency. But the really interesting thing, which is also the really scary thing about the third, fourth and fifth screens, are that you've got to convince your audience. And in some cases, you almost have to do that one by one. I used to always talk about the fourth screen. So the first and second screen is cinema and TV. The third and fourth have always been the the kind of wired PC, and the fourth one was the mobile phone. And we're just at the point now we're starting to talk about the fifth screen being the the tablet, because tablets really are a different screen and a different interface. So it's a bit of a question whether we have five screens, but that's kind of what we're talking about. This thing about audience is the important thing, because when you start to talk about business models, you're talking about audience-based business models. But I do have a look at... The whole point of the business model is that word Gary said, sustainability. I don't think any of, you, any of us are ever going to retire on the, on the money that we're making from the, from the multi-platform or transmedia services that we're doing. We'll get notoriety, we'll get awards, we'll get audiences, we'll build community, we'll be highly successful at engaging people in our content. But the aim should be to have a sustainable service that doesn't kill us to keep it running over time. So I look at a lot of services that are run, and they're run for 13 weeks or 26 weeks or 8 weeks, and they're run for those durations because at the end of it you can wipe your brow and go, it's over. And I want to get to the point where we're running services for 52 weeks a year and we're loving it and they're sustainable and they're paying their own way. And that, to me, would be extraordinary transmedia success. So when you start to look at it, there's really three, maybe four phases of it. And the phases of any project, as we know, is that you go through the development thing, you come up with the idea, you work out what it is you're going to do. 
You then work out how you're going to do it, and you do it. You do the actual building of it, and then you do the managing of it. And it's very different making stuff in the digital space than it is making stuff in the heritage media space. Film and TV, you develop, produce, and then you dust your hands off and go, it's finished. But in digital, you develop and you produce, and then the hard work starts, because that's when you actually have to do all of the work. So if you have a look at it, if you're looking at your funding, then really what you should be looking at is around 15% of your money going on your development phase, around 50% of it going on your production phase, and around at least 30% of it going on your management phase. Now, it partly depends on what it is you're building. In some cases, I would actually say your, your managed money should be 70% of your budget, because if you're going to keep people engaged for a long period of time, you've got to work those people and give them things to do. You might have to have community managers. You might have to have ongoing writers. And I think in some of the things we've heard from, from Neil talking about problems that other people had in delivering really quality services over time was the fact that they didn't fund that manage phase. They funded that produce phase. And it's an issue that I think Mike's aware of in many of the cases of the state agencies. They fund you in the develop and produce, but they don't always give you money for the manage phase. So the manage is, to me, where business models come in, because it's when you're in that stage that you're looking for sustainability. Now, for those of you who've been doing the maths, you'll know there's 5% missing there. And that 5% is a little thing that I always say, put aside for what I call it, we call evergreening. Basically, if you run something for 13 or 26 weeks or 8 weeks or a series, there will be a point when you will need to wrap that up, where you'll need to stop people interacting, you'll need to stop the work you have to do, you'll need to tie up the loose ends. That process of evergreening, if you do it in a sensible way, it means that when your series has shown on Australian television and your digital stuff has run out on Australian television and you then evergreen your digital stuff, when it then gets broadcast in Canada, you can run the same thing and then evergreen the Canadian production, then do it in the UK. If you don't think of evergreening, then you've got a community that starts to kind of get out of control because you're not paying attention to them. So that's kind of where I would say put your money, but I also have to say it has to be assessed on a project-by-project project basis. In some cases, you can spend all your money up to the production phase. And in some cases, you will spend nearly all of your budget on the management phase. So success can breed scary, scary things. Um, when you're at the development phase, where do you get your money from? Okay, you're still at the ideas, you're still thinking about it. But somebody's got to pay, pay for you to be able to eat and have a roof over your head and have clothes. And it'll be your own sweat, so you'll be doing a lot of work for nothing. The three Fs your friends, your family, and fools. And those are, without a doubt, one of the best places to get money from. You convince your friends that what you're doing is interesting and challenging and they should give you money. And in many cases, and most cases, they will if you've got a really good idea. In fact, if your friends and family and fools won't back you, then I question whether your idea is good enough. State screen agencies and state digital media funds are also good sources for this, and they will usually, in Australia, generally give you money up to thirty dollars to $50,000 to go through the development phase. Federal screen agencies, roughly the same. And Mike, I might have my numbers wrong, so correct me if I do. Um, innovation funds, so there are some government funds outside of screen content which are about innovation. And, of course, there's crowdfunding, and we'll have a quick little look at that. But usually... Expect about thirty to 50000 for your developed phase. Don't expect to produce a beta out of it. Um, don't expect to produce something that goes live out of it either. Use it to basically build a prototype that you can justify. Do mock-ups, something that you, you can use as a sales tool to explain why you should get the money you really need to build something beautiful. Trying to build something beautiful on thirty dollars to $50,000 will kill you. Trying to show what a beautiful thing you can build when you get a recent, really decent amount of money, thirty to $50,000, will buy you the ability to show something truly beautiful. Um, but in crowdfunding, the one that I really love, my favourite in this one, is, um, uh, is The Cosmonaut. Many of you are familiar with Riot Films and The Cosmonaut? 
great explanation of what... Have we got audio, Gary? Uh, I am, but the audio is on the other side. I don't think it's going to... No, I need a plug. Rayo Cinema nació de una premisa sencilla y hermosa. Llevar el cine a todos los terrenos posibles. Bruno, Carola y yo formamos nuestro colectivo a principios de 2006 y desde entonces hemos estado haciendo trabajos que nos entusiasmaban. Además nos dimos cuenta de que había una serie de cosas que nos acompañaban siempre. Como escuchar música gratis en Spotify. O ir al cine, pero también buscar películas en la red. O utilizar licencias libres que nos permitían ser igual de creativos pero también estar en contacto con la comunidad. Además, descubrimos el significado de una nueva palabra, crowdfunding. Crowdfunding significa que una persona apoya un proyecto y se lo cuenta a un amigo, y este a otro amigo que también lo apoya, y a otro, y a otro, hasta que un montón de gente lo hace posible. De pronto, estábamos haciendo cine con un montón de amigos, y era maravilloso. ¡Ah! El resto fue historia. Bruno me envió un mail. Nico tuvo una idea. Y así surgió el cosmonauta. La primera película española, financiada mediante crowdfunding y producida por un montón de personas a lo largo de todo el mundo. Desde solo dos euros. Cuando alguien quiere aportar algo más, compra merchandising en nuestra tienda. Licenciada con Creative Commons, atribución y compartir igual, para que tú le edites, copies, remezcles y distribuyas como tú quieras. La estrenaremos en cine, televisión y DVD al mismo tiempo para que seas tú el que elija dónde y cómo verla. Y la tendrás gratis en internet desde el primer día y en alta definición. Además, vamos a realizar un montón de concursos para que todo el mundo pueda participar, desde los músicos hasta los diseñadores. Ya hay un montón de gente que se ha unido con nosotros a esta gran Um, one of the things I really love about that is that um, they almost won an award for the little trailer they made about how they're raising money to make the film that they want to win awards with. So I kind of love that whole thing. Um, the interesting thing about crowdfunding, of course, is that, is that crowdfunding is not just about making money. And we've worked with two crowdfunded projects. Crowdfunded is about building your audience at the very beginning. And a lot of people kind of go, well, look, I'm not going to make enough money to make my thing in crowdfunding, so why would I bother? you're actually going to start stimulating an audience and getting people who are interested in your project and getting people who are dedicated and already engaged before you get a chance to make it. And I'm, I'm seeing more and more people who are thinking that they will use crowdfunding for making small, linear productions that they might put out on the web, but not enough people are thinking of using crowdfunding as a way of really engaging and making clever, digital, multi-platform, transmedia-type things. And, in fact, I've just had somebody who said, no, I don't think crowdfunding's for that and actually told me that because they like to use it for a film, they don't want to actually go out to the community too many times. I think that's a great shame because, to me, the point of crowdfunding is about audience creation as well as some money. So the thing I'll say about digital and digital business models all the way through is there isn't one. There's just lots of little bits that come, so it's worth considering that. Um, to touch on agencies, and I'll, I'll do New South Wales. I know some of you from WA and some from Victoria. The same sorts of things happen there. New South Wales has got state agency Screen New South Wales, early R&D and advanced development and marketing, as well as production financing in the digital sector. 
The Department of Trade and Industry has got a really big one called the Interactive Media Fund that really will give you up to 50000 for your development stage and up to 250000 for your production stage. Uh, of course, you've got federal programs from Screen Australia, which are kind of roughly the same. Digital Ignition is your start-up stage and the All Media Production Fund, which requires marketplace attachment. Now, that's an interesting thing because we all think of marketplace attachment with having a broadcaster or a cinema film distributor on board. But, of course, marketplace attachment in digital might be a relationship with a telco or it might be an agreement from a media company to actually put your content on their site. So marketplace attachment is a very interesting kind of concept when you start thinking about true digital-only productions. Um, and there are now specific rounds, so the next one's in February, as I think most of you are aware of. But there are other things. Uh, we've worked on projects that have been funded by the Australian Council for the Arts. The one thing I'd say there is that, for some reason, the Australian Council of the Arts seems to think that artists should be left starving, and as a result, the amount of money they give you is almost nothing, um, and they expect you to put in all your sweat for those things. But you know, there is an interactive program there called InterArts, which will often be a little bit of the revenue, again, that goes into how you can build these things. But anyway, that's kind of the, the developed stage. In the produce stage, you'll get money from the same people you did before, so the same state agencies, the same friends, families and fools, the same amount of sweat, actually probably a lot more. But you'll be talking to broadcasters who might understand that multi-platform is an important part of the series that they're supporting or an important part of the way they engage with their audience. Distributors may be interested in doing that. It may be something that they see as having marketing value in many cases. The agencies, again, brands suddenly raise their little head. And I think brands is one of those ones that I'm finding really interesting space to play. And then partners, companies like us who will sometimes work for nothing because we really like the idea of what it is we're going to build together. So partners may be people who give you content or give you services or give you work. So the produce stage is interesting. But the one thing is you can't underfund your project. I've, I, I love the idea that somebody's going to walk through the door with, and say, I've got a, an unlimited checkbook and I can pay for everything that we need to pay for, but nobody does. People walk through the door with a check or, or with the idea that they're going to raise $50,000 and they want to build $250,000 worth of digital services for that and they haven't even thought about what they're going to do if the services work, how are they going to keep the community alive, how are they going to manage and maintain the site, how are they going to update it, how are they going to add new missions and things. And if you don't have a business model, if you don't work out how to actually make your site sustainable, make your services sustainable, then your funding has to cover all of your running costs and that's got to be factored in at the beginning. So, remember we said develop 15%, produce 50 and manage 30? <clears throat> and the management of rich, really rich interactive services, so a game, lots of user-generated content, something that's highly socially focused, a living, breathing site where you're creating new challenges and missions for your players to engage in, where you're drip-feeding content, it can be 70% of your budget. Very rarely do people take into account the amount of money that they are going to spend after they've built it after the filming stopped, after they've finished that production stage. In many cases, that's where most of the money will be spent. So I've got to say, if that's where your budget's going, you can't really afford not to be sustainable or not to be thinking about how you're sustainable. So let's have a look at the management stage. Sustainability and sweat, unless you've been smart enough to put some of it aside. <clears throat> and then we get into what are the business models and where does the money come from? So the thing I always say, quite facetiously, but quite accurately is there are only two people who are ever going to pay for your content. Your audience or people who want your audience. And that's kind of it. So you're either thinking about how can I actually engage individually with those people or how can I have such a good level of engagement with a market that I understand so well that other people want to use me as a conduit to get to those people. 
And those are really the only two people who are ever going to pay for your content. So we're talking about individuals and we're really talking about probably companies. So if we look at it, your audience, what does your audience do? The two models that exist really in direct audience are transactions and subscriptions. And really everything falls into this. They pay you for something or they give you a little bit ongoing to maintain access to something that you've given them. And from this, just about every other business model falls underneath that. But consumers will either pay you once and expect to own it or they'll pay you dribs and drabs over time to maintain the relationship and access they have with you. And the people who want your audience, to me, the business model that I like best is sponsorship. And I've just always, I, I love the idea that we started the TV world with soap operas, and we called them soap operas, of course, because they were sponsored by soap brands. There's a reason why that worked. It's the same thing to me that kind of works in digital, which is when you bring in your soap brand and get them to sponsor what you're doing. Uh, it might include product placement, it might include branding, it might just be a wrapper for the company. It might be you know, a big logo that goes up before something starts. Advertising is actually one of the worst models that exists in digital. It works really well if you've got hundreds of thousands of people coming to your site really regularly. Uh, it works okay for brands and text advertising, but for most of us who are trying to engage with our consumers, advertising is a lousy model. Um, there are times when it's good, but it's just you talk to an awful lot of people who step into digital and they think advertising is going to save their bacon. Advertising works for TV companies and TV channels. Advertising works for publishers. Advertising works for sites that have three to seven million Australians through their door every month. Advertising doesn't work where you've got a targeted, niche, highly engaged group of people. Or it can work, but it's not going to work as well. The two other business models that really exist is affiliate where you are basically linking people off your site to somewhere else where they can make a purchase and you get a little kickback for that purchase. And infomediary, which is where you're collecting lots of data on users and who they are and profile information from them and you're flogging that off. It's a kind of dirty business, but you can make money out of it. Uh, <clears throat> and if you build a platform is the other thing and license it to others to create their own audiences. And some of you in here I know have been talking about the idea of building reusable platforms, so building something that you can use time and time again, because there is then another model which is selling it to your peers in the industry. But I want to kind of touch on two new ways of thinking. Now, they're not so new now. They've been around for a while, and they're really the two key things I see digital offering us, which we've never had before. And that's this assumption of freemium, that the price of everything is free, and from that, the correlation, which is that if I'm going to spend money, I'd like to spend lots of virtual money. And so there's ways of earning virtual money and getting me engaged with that. And I have a little, little touch on those. So, so we talked audience. Audience pays transaction subscription online, access to own, subscription to, access, to, to view mobile, app sales. We're familiar with those content sales, subscription games. You can kind of see just the breakdown there. Same thing for where it's not your audience who's paying, but it's somebody else who's doing it. The one really interesting thing is that if you know, the more you know about your audience, the easier it is to monetize them. If you're delivering a service that's, that's aimed at six to 60-year-old men and women equally, it's really hard to convince a sponsor to get involved with you. But if you're building a service that is targeted directly at 14 to 17-year-old sociopathic young boys who hate school and don't like their parents and are struggling, um, struggling with relationships with girls, you can immediately find brands who want to talk to that market or you immediately know where they're going to be. So the more you know about your audience, the better it is. And that's who is it going to appeal to. Target down on that. Target down on those profiles. Target down on that demographic information because if you know your audience then you can convince somebody else that it's, you can find somebody for whom that audience is interesting. If you don't know your audience and your audience is really generic, then nobody's going to find them that interesting because you don't really know who they are. 
Um, and some of you here have got services which are directly targeted specific user groups, but understand them, know what their motivations are, know what their drivers are, because for sponsorship, that's exactly what you need to have. Um, you can kind of see, see it all up there. Advertising works at high volumes and works where it's linear content. Affiliate models are okay, and intermediaries occasionally a little bit sleazy, although I have to say there are cases where you run sites to collect specific data, which is of value, and that might be why you're doing things. Uh, we're running a service at the moment that's tracking people's mental health, and the service is being run to track that information, but it's being done for a health organisation, so it's kind of not quite so sleazy, we think. Um, and that's where data can be interesting. But you can kind of see there about sponsorship is great for games and there's multiple possibilities in there. Um, for social, I think it's, it's kind of a bit less trusted because we're used to our social networks being relatively independent but covered in advertising. Uh, and form has an impact on the types and models that you can put out there. So linear content supplied on a digital screen and natively digital content, which is fully interactive in form. And I really separate these out. It's kind of frustrating for me sometimes to hear about people talking about digital when all they really mean is that they took a TV series and put it on a web. Because that, to me, may be digital, but it's still linear content on a digital screen. It's not digital in that natively interactive ways. And there's a difference between that. Uh, if you're putting out webisodes, then you're putting out linear content on a digital screen. If people can interact and change and reorder those and see them differently or play with them or comment or change the outcomes by, by doing different things with them or see how they can participate, then it's no longer linear in its form. But the thing about linear content is there's lots of nice ways of getting revenue for it. So the models to think of, of course, is smh.tv. And Ricky Sutton, uh, who does smh.tv and the age.tv, talks really well about their models. They are hungry and starving for linear digital content or linear content that they can put out on smh.tv. Their revenue model is a straight 50-50 share on ads with anybody who puts their content up. It's a one-page contract. It's the simplest thing you can do. And right now, Ricky talks about the fact that he has probably got five times more advertisers than he has content. So he's not hanging out for advertisers, he's hanging out for content. And he is running as much long-form content, documentaries, uh, TV, uh, films, whatever, as he is running short-form content. And the thing that's really interesting to him, and it's kinda, it came up for any of you who are at SPA who heard Ricky talk, what do you think the single most interesting, most watched, sorry, not interesting, what was the most watched piece of content by Australians on BitTorrent in 2010? What do you think it would have been? Make, make Sorry? Make no, on Bit BitTorrent. So, on BitTorrent. No, there wasn't that one. It was Father Ted. <laughs> the the thing that Ricky points out is that if you have a movie or a TV show which is incredibly popular, there's lots of ways for people getting hold of it. If you've got a piece of content that hasn't been seen on an Australian screen for a year or two or a film that didn't do really well on its cinematic release, or a piece of content that isn't really being shown anywhere else, it is brilliant for exactly what they're doing because people go there to find things they can't find elsewhere. So the content that works absolutely best on smh.tv is content which never was the top content there. Um, but it's doing very nicely and he's basically paying out about 750,000 bucks a year at the moment, growing rapidly. Uh, for any of you who've got linear content, even if it's old, I would seriously consider having a conversation with Ricky um, because there's a business model there for you. Um, Facebook, the interesting thing, 
I'm finding now, of course, is that you can use your Facebook credits to watch TV shows and watch movies, and that's a change. So Facebook has kind of like moved away, to me, moved away from games a bit to the idea of embracing this linear content. Facebook as a TV platform, Facebook as a, as a cinema platform, I think is quite interesting because they're starting to build this idea that we go there for so much more entertainment than just the games we're used to. And, of course, you'll be familiar with the other platforms that do that. Um, I'll also tell you another story, which is that... Um, uh, and this one's not for public consumption, but um, uh, one of Australia's a content producer in Australia, Shine, actually, Shine360, made a piece of content. And they loaded that piece of content onto both uh, YouTube and smh.tv, so a local site. They then did uh, the same sort of marketing and search engine optimization on that piece of content on both of those sites. Not surprisingly, 85% of their views came from YouTube. Surprisingly, 95% of their revenue came from smh.tv. So the returns on YouTube are appalling for content producers and they're dramatically better on some of those alternate sites. So recommend that to you. This is where advertising works because the nice thing about it is you don't have to worry about it. The person who runs the site worries about it. So, so that is linear digital content. Um, but advertising online and increasingly on mobile, it's presumed to be successful. It's really not the target. You've got to think about whether it's suitable for the product. You've got to think about whether it's going to work for your audience. When you get into advertising, people start throwing terms at you like CPM, CPC and CPA. Those are the three main terms. One of them is basically the number of thousands of people who your ad is presented to. So I've shoved it in the face of people, whether they did anything with it or not, and you'll get fractions of cents for that. CPC, I've put it in front of people, but I only get, you only get paid if they actually click on the ad, whether by mistake or not. That's where the payment comes. And CPA, cost per acquisition um, or paper acquisition. Basically, if you make people jump through a hoop, fill out an insurance form, and at the end of it they sign up for the insurance, you'll get a very nice kickback. CPM in Australia classically goes from anything for $5 per thousand to about $17 per thousand, sometimes to 35 on sites. CPC really goes from anything from $0.05 cents to $2.50. Uh, and cost per acquisition really goes anything from $5 to, I've seen ones, of $1,250. You know, where people sign up for a 30-year mortgage, there can be a really decent kickback on the cost per acquisition. Advertising is messy, specialist, and hard. Um, I like sponsorship myself because it's advertising with a really simple wrapper. So have a look at it on this site here. Just a couple of things in particular about the site. Um, what you've got classically is you've got here this nice little wraparound. So known as a site takeover, you know you've got here is an ad here, you know they're powering it here and a big advertisement down there. So you're all familiar with the types of services that you see on these sites, you're all familiar with these sorts of things. This idea of takeovers is getting to be common. Most of us don't want to run our transmedia in something that looks like that unless we've created the takeover and the ads as part of our service and that's a kind of different thing. If we're mocking up the ads and making them part of the game we're playing with people's minds, that's a slightly different thing. But sponsorship, or let's think of it as branded entertainment, it's often the simplest way of monetizing your idea. You have to know who your niche and target market is so that you can actually then take that out to the advertisers. And really, it is brands that we associate things with. It's brands that we often look for, and it's brands that often give us a sense of comfort. It might include product placement, and, and you have to think about which brands you want to be associated with. But sponsorship can be somebody putting, uh, supporting your service and becoming a character in it, supporting your services and putting their big logo on the corner, or supporting your services because they want to be able to tell people that they're backing you. So I've known documentaries that have been sponsored, I've known TV shows that have been sponsored, and I have known transmedia things that have been sponsored in multi-platform. So I really think this is one of the better ways to go. And there are now increasingly branding agencies who you can take your ideas or your concepts to and say, these are the sorts of brands I think I might be able to work with 
do you have any ideas of how we can approach them? And they will often work with you to actually bring the brands on board with you. So they become your partners in effectively selling, selling and bringing in money for you. Um, affiliate, the absolute most simple way is, how many of you here are familiar with Shazam, the music recognition service? Just about all of you. <clears throat> you do Shazam, it brings up the track, there's a button on it that says click here to buy, you click there to buy, you pay iTunes for, this, for the song, iTunes gives a kickback to Shazam, that's an affiliate model. You go to a TV listing site, you have a look at what's on TV, there's a button there that says buy this on DVD, you click to buy it, you go off to a store, you buy the DVD, there's a kickback to the site, it's an affiliate model. So basically on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, you link people through to something that they've proven that they're interested in and you will receive a small cut of money back, usually 5 to 10%. You usually have to do a good bit of work on your side because when they link through to that destination site, when they link through to iTunes or to Hoyts to buy a cinema ticket or, or anywhere else, you will have to know exactly what content they are looking for. So you will have to have coded up your site so that you are sending them to the right purchase point to do that. Don't throw them at the front door of iTunes and expect them to then navigate their way to the piece of content that they want because you'll also lose them on the journey. So send them right to the point where they can buy that piece of content and then they can come back to your site. But that's affiliate and it can work really nicely. It can often be just a little trickle feed of revenue that's coming in. But the nice thing about digital or the important thing about digital is every little bit of trickle income that comes in is important. Um, and an affiliate, a really nice affiliate model um, on, on phones and on games is OpenFaint which basically it's a free-to-use social platform that exists. You can attach OpenFaint to your games. People sign up to OpenFaint. OpenFaint help promote it. If I'm bored with a game I'm playing, I can go to OpenFaint and find out what other games there are. And if through that I then go and buy another game, OpenFaint manages this affiliate link into iTunes for the games that I purchase there. So it's worth attaching yourself to social communities. OpenFaint isn't the only one, but it's one of those examples of how you can bring this into a game and have a potential slow-burning revenue stream that sits behind it with somebody else managing that for you. Um, intermediary list breaking selling information on your audience so someone else can take advantage of them to dirty business um, but if the data you have is really that good the thing I'd say is do clever things with it yourself because the data on your users and your consumers can be fabulous in terms of tailoring and personalising services for them so not a business model that I'm, I'm a fan of as you can kind of tell I guess um, but it can be quite an interesting one and, and I mean in the case of making Australia happy we had 45,000 people on our list 45,000 people who want to go through self-improvement, 45,000 people who would like to improve themselves, I could have done an awful lot with that list if I'd been allowed to do so um, so that's an example of a kind of a potential intermediary model and we'll have a look at that so Consumer Direct. Um, consumer Direct services, I know, you all know this, so I'm not going to go into it in great detail. Transaction, you know what it is. Key considerations, how are they going to pay you if they're buying something from you? If you're selling them something that ends up being a physical product, you're going to have a real issue with getting it into their hands. Selling digital stuff is a hell of a lot easier. So selling access or selling a digital download is a lot easier than actually trying to sell somebody something that you're going to put into the post and send to them. How do you deal with returns? How do you deal with all that messy stuff? Um, app stores and premium payments are a nice way of doing transactions. So just about all handsets and carries have got an app store, and this really is where we do these things in, in that space. Transactions happen on mobiles, usually through app stores or through in-app purchases. The app stores are their own sweet pain. Um, we've all heard Apple generally will take anything between two weeks and two months to approve your application. Sometimes they won't approve it on spurious reasons. 
lengthy delays can happen. They'll reject it because you've included a piece of third-party content, which a month ago was OK, but right now they're not in the mood for accepting. So you've got to either wait another month until they're back in the mood for accepting it or taking it out. We had a service run for a year that had no analytics in it because at the time we loaded it up, Apple wasn't happy with the analytics company and so we weren't allowed to use the analytics we'd been using. So we removed analytics, got the app approved. The next time we submitted it 12 months later when we'd done some changes, analytics were back on the table again. So sometimes these things are just oddities that you have to deal with. Um, and the merchant service fee for most of these is around 30%. So you will get, after GST, 70% of the revenue that remains. And that's a fairly general rule of thumb that takes place pretty much across there. Um, in the phone market, and I'm actually going to touch on it a little bit later, iPhone's got the largest installed base and the store is carefully managed, so most of us have good experience with that. Android, there's no intermediary. You can, sell, you can sell or give away Android apps directly from your own website without even going through the Android marketplace. It's, it's less uh, connected as the iTunes one is because a lot of us haven't already signed ourselves up and given our credit card details in there, so it's a bit more fragmented. There are also branded Android stores. So, for example, Samsung runs their own Android store and Telstra runs their own Android store. So you've got bits of things in there. Samsung checks the apps like iPhone does. Telstra does to a degree, so you're getting hybrids in this space. And web apps, most of us don't know it, but Apple actually has a store for just web apps. It's just that they don't tell you about that. So web apps is where you haven't built a native app, but you've really got something which is more HTML-based and just in a wrapper. But <clears throat> premium payments... This is the nice thing about, the really nice thing in mobile is that your payment models have been done for you, so the merchant is in place. Your mobile phone carrier, uh, your mobile phone manufacturer is almost always your, your payment place. Um, subscription, not always done successfully. What's interesting at the moment in Australia, of course, is that with both Murdoch and Fairfax putting in paywalls, we're starting to get to the point of the idea that some content should be free and some should be paid for. So we're now looking at the idea of subscriptions in ongoing things for stuff that we've generally taken to be free. Um, you all kind of get it. So let's look at the big paradigm shift we've had in monetization. So the move towards freemium and virtual. Um, freemium, you know that. You give away something for nothing to spark interest and make consumers want to give you money for the premium or extra bids. The reason why they want to give you that can be free, can be various, and we'll have a quick look at those. But there is an expectation in digital that stuff's going to be free. And we really want people to pay because they have engaged with us, that there's some sort of emotional att attachment there. But the one thing I'd say is a lot of people decide that they'll start free and go paid at some point, but they've never worked out what that point is. And the most dangerous thing you can do is go free, not work out when you're going to start paying, introduce a pay model, discover it doesn't work and go out of business. So work out how you're going to live in a freemium world quite early. And there are starting to be some scary models of freemium not working. So, for example, last week Lego announced that they are closing their Legoland virtual world because the freemium model hasn't been working for them. So we are getting consumers now who are so aware of this that they just play in the free spaces they're given. And there's so many free spaces to play in that in many cases we no longer have to step into those premium places. So freemium as a model is starting to have look a little bit tarnished around the edges, I'd say. There's some problems there. But uh, I'm a fan of freemium and virtual currencies, and we rarely put out things that people pay for because we still believe that this is going to work. So looking at users, I'm going to have a quick look at Social Gold, which is a Google-owned company um, that deals in social currency. It's good to be king. <coughs> right, kings, you can see here. Put on my glasses. Right, kings are hardcore purchases, and they'll usually spend about $1,000 with you. Lords, loyal repeat purchases, $247 in this one. Knights, uh, first month purchases, $46. Commoners, single one-time purchases, worth about $12. And peasants, non-paying users, worth about, worth about nothing. 
And what you'll usually find is in the way that society is structured, there's a whole lot of peasants. There's one or maybe two kings. There's a couple of lords, a few commoners and the odd knight here and there. So what you've got to think of is your, your revenue is not evenly spread across all of the users. And although one of the terms we often use is average revenue per user, there really is no average user. If we were to take the ordinary user, they would be peasants and they generate nothing to us. So supporting our kings is very important. And if you look here... Entertainment in a direct model, free-to-play games that are monetised through virtual goods. Another word for kings is whales. So whales are the people who give you lots of big stuff. Um, and what you kind of get is this. Can you see where your zero line is? That's your break-even line. So your dedicated whales, right, your kings and your, your lords are pretty good for you. And your knights aren't too bad, but by the time you start getting down to your, uh, your commoners and your peasants, then you are really probably losing money on all of those. The long tail is a scary way of needing to do business, but it is part of the way you have to do business in digital because while you're not going to make money out of your, your, your commoners and your peasants, you can make money out of your kings if you can engage them. And the more I think that we can engage with people, the more we can convert them into commoners or knights, into people who are paying us small and regular sums of money. The thing that's interesting in this, and it's kind of really challenging, is that Super Rewards is a company that lets you jump through lots of advertising hoops and gives you back credits. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm struggling in Farmville and I want to get 100 Facebook credits so that I can do something more in Farmville, I can go to Super Rewards and I can watch some ads and I can fill out a quiz and I can do a survey and I can sign up for a three-month trial of something. And by participating in all of these advertising things, I can earn Facebook credits that I can then take back to Facebook and play in the game. I can earn credits in a whole lot of virtual environments and a whole lot of virtual currencies. So it's kind of a way of me generating more money when I don't just want to play Farmville, but I want to go back into Farmville richer. I could go to Super Rewards and hang out there and do all of these advertising-based activities. But the thing that's interesting is we're shorter on time than we are on money, and 67% of the people who go to Super Rewards hand over cold, hard cash in order to get those Facebook credits. So now they can buy them directly from Facebook, but it used to be before those models existed, Super Rewards aggregates currencies across a whole variety of places. So I go to Super Rewards, I look at what I've got to do, and I think, oh, it's a hell of a lot easier to give them 100 bucks, and I'll tend my 100 bucks. I'll have 100 here and 20 there and 50 there and 1,000 there. And 67% of people would rather pay money for virtual currency than actually spend time earning virtual currency. So it's a, an interesting thing to think of. Consumers are surprisingly willing to pay if you've got something they want. So what do you want? Um, we often say this, if, if, if you're not paying for something, you're not the customer, you're the product being sold. And you've got to think about the fact that Google is a freemium model. We are the customers, being, we're the product being sold. Our interests, our rankings, what we do is what's being sold, the information on our habits and our browsing. In Facebook, we're the product being sold. You know, our status updates, our profiles, that information, where we go, the things that we've signed up for, that's the product being sold so that we can be adver advertised to. So you do have to think about this value of free and paid in these things. But the wonders of freemium games, look at this iTunes top grossing things. The first four things of the top grossing, making most money overall. The first four are free. The bottom one is a $75 app, right? So a TomTom -tom Navigator thing. So you've got to think, okay, Smurfs Village, Tap Pet Hotel, Tap Zoo and Tiny Tower. People don't pay for those, but they're the top grossing ones. They're the ones that have made most money. So where did they make it? The interesting thing on this chart, that's when they didn't have enough payments, so you couldn't make a payment within an application. This is when they did have enough payments. 
So what you've basically got on there is that the revenue from freemium games, so the amount of money made by games which are delivered to consumers free, is now 65% of the revenue that's going through the 100 top grossing games. And so that's why top grossing games are free, because within the game you can go and spend some money on it. So it's kind of showing the importance of in-app purchases. Revenue diversity. The really interesting thing is in Big Point C5, you had the option of buying a $10 ship, a $100 frigate or a $1,000 galleon. What sold first? The galleons. What sold second? The frigates. What sold last? The ships. You can do a lot more with a galleon than you can do with a ship. So our interest is in getting the rare and often more expensive things because they have benefits associated with them. So that's where we'll start to spend our money. And in terms of game mechanics as revenue drivers in the virtual currency space, what are people going to spend their money on? Power-ups, unlocks, levels, accelerators, these sorts of things. Consumable goods, not durable goods. So they'll spend their virtual money on things which are temporary rather than things which they have forever. Rather than buying a house, they'll buy something which is temporary. They'll buy something which they can do in the course of the game. So power-ups, things that make the gameplay easier or more interesting. Tony calls all of these versions of status, I think, don't you? So, so power-ups, unlocking the game, so going from a simple one that might have one or two levels into something where you can play the whole thing. Getting the additional levels or stages, or yeah, unlock yeah, levels or stages, accelerators, you know, items that exist in the game that you can purchase, so you can shortcut your role in the game and go leaping up there. Consumables, things that deplete, so you buy health or you buy cash or you buy food, you know, or you buy status. Um, and aesthetics, and this, I find this one really interesting. Things that you buy because they make you look good. Um, uh, and then, of course, aesthetics is gifts, and it's kind of funny. I've never forgotten, and this must have been, Laura, this must have been about four years ago. One time I was really, I was homesick and I was feeling lousy. So I wrote on my on Facebook status, I was feeling terribly sick, and Laurel sent me a box of tissues. So, <laughs> and, uh, and that's kind of, it's amazing how those gift purchases. Sorry? Yeah, I know, but you sent me a roll of toilet paper after that when I ran out of tissues. I'm not paying you back for that, honey. <laughs> um, so aesthetics as gifts is interesting. Um, cool. Are you all feeling brain dead and bamboozled? Jim, yeah. can I ask a question? Is that a galleon, a thousand real dollars? No, that's a thousand virtual dollars within the game. So it's just within the game currencies they are. But they will, they will have an associated cost depending on how the currencies relate to it. Um, we're building a Facebook game at the moment. We're trying to work out how much does a life get you and how much does a cloak get you and how much does the ability to fly cost you. you know? So you work these things out in relation to those models. So. Um, Right, I'm going to have a look at a couple of things. So I'm going to have a look at Making Australia Happy, a beautiful and wildly successful website, uh, multi-platform transmedia experience. Why was it successful? Reasons why it was successful. We had a really good audience and we had really good sign-up. TV show got about 600,000 viewers. Um, the website got somewhere between 400 and 600,000 visitors to it. Kind of depends on who you talk to at the ABC. So the people who came to the website was almost the same as the television viewers. Great success. 45,000 of those people jumped through the hoop to give us their email, phone, and quite a degree of details about them, and we have all those details, so we've got a group of people that we can market to. We had, we had about, uh, I think we had about 60,000 people take the test. A year after it was on television, we continue to have people coming back to the site, and nine months after it had been on television, the ABC admitted that almost half of the moderation that they had to do in that area was for this site specifically because people were continuing to participate in it. Great measures of success, really good measures of success. Did we make any money out of it? Well, we got paid. Um, the the uh, producers were really happy with it. The ABC is really happy with it. How sustainable is it? Uh, they sold the show overseas, but they can't take the website overseas because we didn't build it in a way that does that. And nobody's giving us money for it. Don't. How can we make money out of it now? Well, we can't because it's ABC. So, if I had my time again, I would 
consider advertising because with 600,000 people coming into the site, that's an advertising group. Sponsorship. I bet there's a lot of wellbeing associations or wellbeing magazines or people who make vitamins or people who make lifestyle changes or people who will help you lose weight who would love to sponsor a site like this. Product placement. I could do really quite interesting and subtle product placement for things that help you sleep better at night, for natural remedies, for um, uh, exercise machines, for those sorts of things that I could put here in the site. Uh, I could give you a subscription to an ongoing program. We put in here a full eight-week program on how to get happier. And what would have been interesting was to actually allow you to subscribe to that. And over eight weeks, we would have reminded you about the program and would have told you what the activities for this week were, and we would have sent reminders to your mobile phone and alerts and got you to send back your results and how you'd gone. And you would probably happily have parted with a couple of bucks for that level of reminder. Uh, there's a book and a DVD, but we're not selling them through the site. Would be nice if we could. The purchasing of tailored programs. We had four psychologists who sat around and played with the, on the forums and communicated with people. What if you could submit and for 15 bucks have one of them give you a tailored program to make you happier based on what was, was not working for you? Sales of the apps and reminders for activity. So we didn't build an iPhone app for this one, but we could have. We could have done an affiliate program to other wellness services. So if one of the things that you're grappling with was uh, mental acuity, we could have maybe given you uh, affiliates to services that are designed to make you more mentally strong or exercise your brain. And of course, with my 45000 I could have gone out list-breaking to all of those people who wanted to do that. So a bunch of business models that could have been applied to making Australia happy. In this case, it's not going to be because it's ABC, and there's really no way I would squeeze all of those into the site that would be milking it for every penny that it's, that it's worth, but it would really be tarnishing it. So while these are the business models that could have applied for that site, always take your business models really carefully because you can so abuse your community when you start squeezing them in those ways. Uh, the next site we're working on, we are starting to think about what the models are for a broader happiness central site that we can do with ABC Commercial so we can bring in some of these. No, you can, I mean, Gary can probably answer this, but generally ABC will not allow advertising, but ABC Commercial will allow advertising of ABC-related products. So it's usually not of things outside that, but it would be ABC products. If this hadn't been ABC, I could have done those things. Because it's ABC, I can't do those things. Uh, I think there's... Actually, it's interesting. ABC does take sponsorship, but they don't often tell people a lot of that, and it's usually fairly hidden in the sites. Um, I'm kind of looking at this where if it wasn't even an ABC show or if the site was not ABC linked at all, this is what I could do with it. You got any other ABC? No. Um, the other one, okay, another one we did was a really a cute little mobile service called China Heart. Um, it existed in three forms. It was a mobile app, it was a mobile site, and it was a website. So you can still go to chinaheart.org.au and, and get this. This is just a picture of... This is a picture of the site, and we built the website to look similar to the mobile site. So you can see there that you've got a map of Chinatown in Sydney with these little placements on it, and then the locations on the side. They link off to videos. We tell a story of a Chinese girl who's about to get married and who gets a message from the past and realises she has to uncover stories about her Chinese heritage and identity before she can actually be released and free to marry the man she wants to marry. So we have you go around Chinatown to discover the locations there, to visit places, to get the information and to ultimately to unlock things in the game as you work your way through. Uh, website looks like that and lets you participate from anywhere in the world and the mobile phone looks like that. You can see there's a lot of similarity between the two of them. Uh, and the mobile site actually looks roughly the same too. So that's what we had as that. Now, 
Did we monetize it? No. Um, in this case, <coughs> what could we have done? We could have given you in-app purchases for the long-form content. So, for example, we could have delivered you all of the content bundled up together into a single movie that you might have paid for. There's about 45 minutes of content in total. So rather than just trickle-feed it to you through there, we could have let you buy the movie. Um, we could have done app sales. There was a mobile site, so it could have been that you click on that to buy the app, so we could have sold the app. Although that said, I've said I'm in favour of freemium. Uh, location sponsorship. If you look at those locations, what you'll see down here is uh, Yumcha, that was a restaurant. Belmore Park, there was somebody there. Trocadero, that's a business. So one of the things we could have actually done was go to those locations and actually find somebody there who was the sponsor and use branding. So I recommend that you eat at the Yumcha restaurant or visit the shop that they have or go to the antiques gallery or the art one. So we could have sold location sponsorship. Uh, DVD sales of the whole thing packaged up. Merchandise sales. We had those gorgeous little coins and we also had rep we, we had used some archives from the um, Powerhouse Museum. So we had a particular fan, an old Chinese fan, and we had a couple of little suit. We could have actually made replicas of those and sold them as merchandise. So people who had gone through China Heart could have had one of the little coins of China Heart to say that. They could have bought little Chinese dolls and those sorts of things. Um, we could have done limited time subscriptions. So it could have been that we say, okay, the app is, has a price, but what we're going to do is let you buy it for a week, and which means you've got a week to then go and explore it in that area. So a limited time sponsorship. And we could have affiliated with other tours in Chinatown or, or other things in Chinatown. So by doing our tour, you could have then signed up to do another walking tour of Chinatown or an audio tour of Chinatown or something else that you've indicated your level of interest in. So that, can you kind of see, these are the business models, again, that we could have applied and squeezed in there. Um, we didn't in this case because it wasn't a service that we were driving, and it was really being done more as an arts uh, and exploration project. Interestingly, we've had two or three people come to us since and say, can you run something like that in my area? So for us, we're looking at this as a platform play of rolling it out again and again. Okay. Um, now I'm going to have a look at something which never went live, but more because I think this one's, this one's interesting. Um, I said I love brands. Uh, I was talking at... Um, talking at Spa the other week, and one of the things we were talking about was about this whole idea of how do you make money out of things. And the interesting thing is, how do you deal with brands? Now, a lot of companies look at brands and go, sponsors, advertisers, etc. To me, brands are interesting when you can go to a brand and say, I'm going to involve you as a character in my story. I'm going to put you in my story as part of what we're doing. It's a very different experience for a brand who, instead of having their logo or their values put out there, suddenly participates in something. Uh, and that's really the way that we are increasingly talking to brands to get them to engage, is to say, become part of it. And so, so what I'm about to show you has never gone live, um, but it is an example of the way that we approached and successfully sold to Telstra on a service that we ultimately pulled the plug on because we didn't have enough time to deliver. But uh, the project was Torchwood, so the BBC Stars series... Um, we had the rights to build a game around this. We took it into Telstra, and we wanted to immerse Telstra in a way that added to the game experience, right? So Telstra wasn't just a la label we were going to put on it. And the, Telstra's brand values that they told us that they were, were key to them were sustainability, innovation, and community. So they wanted to see that we could take their brand values and create those as characters within the way that we inserted Telstra into it. So we put them in the narrative as a positive, experiential part of the gameplay. Players had to support the Telstra brand. Right, so the idea was, the concept we had was sustain the network. 
So there was a network of communication towers, all nicely Telstra branded, that let players communicate with each other and plan missions and exist as a community. And the communities could not form unless there was a way for them to communicate with each other. So in the Torchwood world, the, players, the towers needed the players' support to stay online. Right? So the players had to become active supporters of the network. So you can see there the player is shown in the centre in red, the little red dot. You can see the Telstra tower up here in the corner. Um, healthy towers are blue. Um, assets can be picked up there. And enemies are red. So there's baddies on the screen there. And in an AR mode, we continued with the idea of the Telstra Towers. So that was really to show that in this one, what happened was it was important and Telstra was a player in the game and a character in the game and there was a relationship that you had to have with the Towers, which is different from just whacking Telstra branding on it. Now, for the game of this type, Telstra committed to $250,000 worth of sponsorship revenue. There wasn't going to be a Telstra branding on the front of it, but there was going to be Telstra as a player in the game. So how do you fund and manage a project? Branding is a really good way of doing it. We pulled the pin because by the time Telstra got round to jumping through the hoops to say yes, we couldn't deliver it to match the, the Australian launch date, which is, I have to say, so often the case. Um, so <coughs> that's kind of an interesting one of... And it's just an example of what's happened. I'll, other variants on that is that we've got another game where uh, you have to go and do an activity in the real world that happens to be near a payphone. We can make that payphone ring when you finish that one. That kind of adds Telstra to the game in a different way by having the phone ring and you answering a Telstra payphone. Um, where we deal with virtual currencies in these sorts of games, we're actually talking to banks about the idea that I can, I can deposit my virtual currency by being within 50 metres of a bank and I can withdraw my virtual currency by being within 50 metres of a bank. But certainly if I get attacked by other players when I'm carrying virtual currency, they'll probably rob me. So it's useful to have it stuck away in the bank somewhere where I can get back to it. And that makes the banker player. So the idea of can you make brands, players and part of the transmedia or multi-platform you're delivering. Um, I, just, I want to touch on just a couple of things before we go into the exercise, which is that there hasn't been a lot of talk about mobile and I'm a complete mobile junkie. Uh, I want to tell you how important it is because there is 120% penetration in Australia. We are the highest penetration of smartphones in the world by degrees. You know, we're 20% higher than the nearest country for smartphone penetration and pulling away. At the time they did the statistics, Australia had 36% smartphone penetration and the next highest country was the US on 30. We're now nearly 55% smartphone penetration expected to get between 55 and 60 by the end of this year. So smartphones in Australia are phenomenal. There are more phones than there are Australians. There's a really lovely chart from Google that you can spend a lot of time, you know, having a look over about where consumers are here. But for any of you who are looking at a younger demographic, and I'm thinking Lost Boys in particular now, um, we're talking about games that people can play. In reality, that community that you're talking to, mobile. I, I would even question whether you should think about doing anything that deep on the web or whether you should go straight to mobile as being the delivery form because if you're going to reach them, for a lot of people, this is the target device. I couldn't find the, uh, the particular stat that I was after, but it's expected that sometime around March or April next year, mobile internet use will overtake fixed-line internet use that we are spending more time on the web on our mobile phones than we are on fixed lines. And that basically says, why do we keep thinking of the fixed line web as the home of what we're doing? We need to start thinking of the mobile and the mobile web as the home of what we're doing. So some key points. Grants are useful. They're really handy for getting your project up. But do you want to be a sustainable business or a charity? You want to make something that's going to let you keep on making things? You need to be sustainable. Digital business models are basically a little from a lot, and that may give you enough. So try and think of at least four or five or six business models that you could apply, work out which ones you really want to, test them over time and change them as you need to. 
Sponsorship is a fabulous way of getting it done, and I can't tell you enough how good sponsorship or, or, brand, or brand integration is. And it's funny, about three years ago, I remember saying that um, the problem was that advertisers can't get traction with the community because we're in so many places that we don't take any notice of the ads that they've got out there, so advertisers are really struggling. And over here were screen content makers who were really struggling to actually get the money because they had engaging stories to tell audiences, and it was so obvious to me that the two of those have to come together so that our engaging stories are being told to audiences to the value of advertisers who will help us make those engaging stories. And I think we're just at the point where we're starting to see that. Advertising is great when your audience is large. Freemium and virtual currency are great business model wrappers because ultimately you're still going to be getting your money from one of the standards business models that exists. And work out what your models are at the beginning. Make sure you know that your audience knows when these are going to come into play. If I play something free for three months and then they tell me that I've got to pay and I didn't know that up front, I feel really cheated. If I'm told I've got three months free, it's fine because I kind of know that. So don't cheat your audience. Let them know if you're going to change the, the models that exist under there, particularly if you're going to start expecting them to pay. And basically, <clears throat> the little yellow brick road of uh, digital revenue is one tiny little brick at a time. And as I said, I think we're at a point where we are near the tipping point where we will start to make sufficient revenue from the business models that we apply to make our services sustainable and potentially rich and grow. But right now it remains that struggle and there still is the expectation that digital will deliver and digital will deliver and very soon. So. Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another StoryLabs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.